our Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July every year. We do such. We commemorate that day hundreds of years ago where our nation issued this Declaration of Independence. And that declaration led to a war. And when that war came to an end, and when all the smoke and gunpowder faded and ceased, what emerged was a new nation, it, a new nation that was independent from a former oppressor that held claim to the colonies, that, that uh, as soon as that war came to an end, this, this nation was liberated. It was freed from tyranny and oppression. It was a brand new, sovereign, free, independent nation. And we Americans, we Christians who live here in the United States of America, some of us were born here and are Americans, some of us recently became U.S. citizens, and we rejoice in those, those types of things. But we, we rejoice that we are part of a nation in which we get to enjoy all sorts of freedoms because if you travel in most of the world, most of the world does not enjoy the liberties that we enjoy here in the U.S. So we are grateful. We are grateful to God for what it is that we enjoy here in the U.S. of A. We are humbled by the sacrifice of men and women and individuals before us who gave their lives and gave the lives of their family and, and did all sorts of sacrificing and serving that we may enjoy these really, truly wonderful freedoms in this country. But that being said, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have greater reason to rejoice this morning. We have been set free from sin. We have been liberated from the tyranny and the oppression of death, of sin and its eternal consequences. We are no longer under that tyrant. He is no longer, it is no longer master over us. It is, its dominion over us has been shattered and broken forever. And this all took place through the sacrifice of Jesus because freedom always takes sacrifice. Freedom always costs a life. And it's through the sacrifice of Jesus, him laying his life down on a cross on our behalf that we are liberated from death and liberated from sin and liberated from judgment. And it's by the grace of God offered to us by faith in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus that these bond, this bond of, of tyranny, of sin, is shattered and lifted and, and removed from us. Jesus went to war for us. That's what the cross was. Jesus went to war. And when it all cleared, liberty emerged. Freedom arose from the cross of Christ. And so now all who call on Jesus and make him Lord of life, we are, we are free. And we should never cease to marvel at what we, it is that we have received through Christ. We should never cease to marvel at this freedom that we have in Jesus. And one of the ways that we not become unastonished by this gift of, of, of life that we have in Christ is by just 
thinking about sin for a minute. Sin is real. It's very active and it's very alive in us and its effects are utterly devastating. They're devastating in our lives now, here and today, and much worse, way more devastating in, in the life to come. Lying, cheating, manipulating, slander, malice, lust, pride, addictions, pornography, anger, resentment, spitefulness, bitterness, unforgiveness, selfishness, self-centeredness, laziness, apathy, all of that, and much more sin. Attitudes, actions, behavior that, in, that are in total contradiction with the character of God. In each and every one of us, every person ever born on this planet was made in the image and the likeness of God. And what that means is that we have been created to reflect the character of God, not to live lives of adultery or of resentment or of malice. We're not created to live lives lives of addiction and disrespect and unfaithfulness. We're created to live lives of honor, lives that honor God. And the reality is that everyone sitting in this room and everyone born on this planet, with the exception of Jesus himself, is a sinner. We're born into our sin. We are all have sin in each and every sin. So every individual sin that you have ever committed, each one by itself is an infinite offense against an infinite God who happens to be all holy and all powerful. Each one, let alone all of them together, each and every one is an infinite offense against Lord Almighty. And this is where we have to come to grips with some truth. That God would be justified, he would be just in dispensing judgment on each and every one of us for each and every sin. It is well within his right to call us guilty on account of that one lie, let alone all of them, and to shell out judgment, to pass on sentence. All right? Now, here is the beautiful news. God offers pardon. He offers forgiveness for each and every one of us. He makes mercy available to all. Forgiveness of each and every sin is made available to each and every person. Is that not good news? So just imagine every thought action, deed, attitude, behavior that you've ever committed that was ungodly, immoral, unwise, or just flat out wrong, each and every one of them, all of them, utterly wiped off of your eternal record forever. And that is precisely what God willingly 
offers to every person on the planet. That's the good news. That's why we call the gospel good news, that God offers this forgiveness to anyone who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I admit and I confess that I am in fact a sinner, and I admit and confess these sins they've got a hold of me, and, and I live in fear and in guilt and shame, Lord, and I want you to remove this burden away from me. And so that person turns from a lifestyle of sin, and they give their lives over to Jesus because he loves them. They recognize that, they, that Jesus loves them, and he died for them. and said, Lord, I will now follow. I'll give my life to you. Will you give me mercy? And Jesus said, I'll give you mercy. And says, okay, I'll be a follower. And every person who so chooses to be a follower of Jesus is forgiven of everything, all sin, past, present, and future. Amen. Praise God. Freed from the bondage of sin, it no longer is a tyrant, no longer is an oppressor, no longer has any rights over us. Freed from sin and its eternal consequences forever. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Now, wonderful, right? Great news? Good news? Let me tell you, as amazing as that gift is, it's not the greatest gift that God gives. That messes with some of us depending on what stream of Christianity we've spent our lives in. Let me tell you, forgiveness of sin is not the greatest gift that God gives. It's actually a means to an end. You know what the greatest gift that God gives is? Himself. His presence, his nearness, fellowship with God. The greatest gift that God gives is pouring out the Holy Spirit, pouring out himself into those he has forgiven. That we don't receive the Holy Spirit until we are forgiven of our sins. So really the pardon for sin is just a means to an end. The end is fellowship with God, relationship with God, communion with the God who loves us. So he's like, I got a clean house first. I got a clean house. Like we got we to gotta do business and, and clean up and get rid of the sin and have that handled. And once he does that, God moves in. Literally, the Holy Spirit moves in and dwells within the believer forever and ever. You know, we, we praise Jesus for his sacrifice. Jesus Christ, God's Son, God the Son, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Praise God for God with us. But the Holy Spirit is God in us. God within us. We are the temple of God. That's the gift. Communion, relationship, fellowship with God forever and ever where we know him as our father and he guides us. He communicates with us, leads us, protects us, shepherds us, provides for us. That no matter what we go through, he's right there with us, assuring us that we belong to him, that he loves us. And guaranteeing that when life on this planet ceases, that we will be with him forever and ever in glory. That's the gift. That's the gift. That's the greatest gift any of us could ever imagine. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 says this. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. In other words, Jesus Christ went to the cross to rescue us, to pay for our sin. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. In other words, having become sin in our place, having taken our sin upon himself, for it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why did he do that? In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, why? So that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through Christ Jesus. Why did Jesus die for us? To forgive us of sin. Why does God forgive us? That the Holy Spirit may come and abide in us. The greatest gift from God is not pardon of sin. The greatest gift from God is the presence of God. The presence of God. And this is why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross that we would receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not in it. The Holy Spirit is not some energy force or anything like that. The Holy Spirit is He. He is God. He is the third member of the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And He comes and takes residence in us. He is the Spirit of God poured out into the hearts of God's people. So the greatest gift is just simply the nearness of God. The psalmist says it so beautifully. Lord, it is your nearness that is our good. It's the nearness of God that is our good. Well, how much nearer can he be than to dwell within us? There is no more nearer than that. Therefore, there's nothing gooder to use my eloquent Harnett County speak. There's nothing gooder than this gift that God has placed within us, himself. So the question then is, what do we do having received such a marvelous gift? How do, how do we respond to that? Well, unlike our nation, the United States of America, unlike our nation that practices independence, right? We are a sovereign nation. No other country tells us what to do. We do what we want, how we want, right? At least our leaders. And... <laughs> Our country's sovereign and enjoys independence. Well, for Christians, we've been freed. We've been liberated from oppression and tyranny of sin. But not to live lives of independence, folks, but rather to live lives of dependence. What happens through Jesus is that we basically trade servitude. We were servants of sin, servants of darkness, and we've been freed so that we may now freely serve God. Our servitude has now been exchanged from a tyrant and an awful master to a wonderful, good, benevolent one. So now, what, it, what is the means or the, the way in which believers are to live is that we are to live life in dependence of God as opposed to a life of independence apart from from God. We're supposed to be giving our lives over to him, relying on God's strength and not relying on our strength. Depending on God's wisdom, not relying on our supposedly so-called human ingenuity and cleverness and resourcefulness. We're, as Christians, we're not even supposed to be muscling through stuff. Right, really, you're going to rely on your own strength to stave off temptation. I'm sorry, not going to go well. Maybe for a second or two. Maybe. Maybe. 
No, you rely on God, the strength, the mighty hand of God in you to stave off temptation, to become more like Jesus, to grow in Christ's likeness. Not relying on ourselves. And we don't do things, we don't do what we want. We do what God wants. That's a life of dependence. Not doing our thing, but doing God's thing. That's a life of dependence. And that is a much better life than living a life of independence apart from God. Way, way superior. Superior. Like, if, if I'm trying to muscle through my life on my own, doing my thing my way, how I want, using my supposed skill and ingenuity and talents and whatnot, I tell you, it's an unsustainable life, and it's a life that's, that lacks joy. It lacks joy. You will be exhausted, stressed, and more than likely worried and fearful most of the time. Well, there's a better way to live, and God offers it. Say. So, Come to me, let me pour my spirit out to you, give up living a life of independence, and now let's live a life of dependence where I will guide you, love you, and, and, and lead you all the days of your life. Which one's better? Which one's better? The second one. The second one is much better. And so we can enjoy the presence of God in our lives and get this, where the presence of God is, there is power. There's power. So if you would please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking, we're going to be spending a little bit of time in Acts chapter 1. We'll have the verses on the screen. If uh, Just FYI, Acts is in the New Testament, fifth book of the New Testament. It's right after the Gospel of John. It's right before the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. We do have Bibles out there available. Uh, if you don't have one, we'd love to give you one of those in uh, the pews or underneath the chairs there. Um, and as you're turning to Acts chapter 1, uh, just to recap a little bit what we've been doing for the past five weeks or so, we've been working our way through a sermon series that we're wrapping up today, that we're concluding today, and what we've been discussing is what does it mean to live a life of dependence upon God? Specifically, what does it mean to live a life of dependence upon the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit is not a topic as important as the Holy Spirit is, a topic that gets discussed much or taught well, I believe, in most churches. So we, we felt that we needed to spend a little bit of time there. Uh, this is not by any means meant to be an exhaustive study on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, on pneumatology, if you will. It's not meant to be exhaustive. Hopefully, it's planted a few good th uh, seeds in your mind, hopefully increase a level of curiosity so that maybe you can read the Bible on your own, study on your own, have conversations on your own. Uh, maybe some of it stirred up some thoughts as we went through these weeks, but it's not, it wasn't meant to explain everything, but just to kind of get the conversation going in your life. And so we've been looking at what it means to live a life of dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Namely, we've looked at some of the roles of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And today, specifically, we are looking at this role of the Holy Spirit as empowerer, which is hard to say. Empowerer. Empowerer. <laughs> I should have said that out loud before I tried it out. All right. So, again, let's, let's look at verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is speaking because it's in red, and so Jesus speaks in red. And so Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So just know this, that the Holy Spirit is not only the very presence of God 
with us and in us. The Holy Spirit is the very power of God active and alive in us and through us. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit is not only the very presence of God with us and in us, the Holy Spirit is the very power of God active and alive in us and through us. The word in verse 8 that we translate power is the Greek word dunamine from the Greek word dunamis. It's a word that's used at least six times in the book of Acts in reference to miracles. So six other times in the, in the book of Acts, you come across this specific word, and it has to do something with this mighty act of God, like this next-level supernatural experience or this next-level miracle action of God in the world. And when Jesus promises, what Jesus promises in this verse is that when a person becomes a Christian, they receive the Holy Spirit which means that they've received this God-given, supernatural, miracle-working power in their lives. This is the promise of Jesus. When a person becomes a follower of Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit, which means that they receive God-given, supernatural, miracle-working power. So I wonder, how many of us walk around daily aware of the manifestation of God-given, supernatural, miracle-working power in our lives? How many of us would say that we are aware of divine, God-given power in our lives as we go to work and to play and pick up kids and do this and that and go to the stores? How aware are we of this? How real is it? Do we see it displayed in us and through us? Is it happening? In other words, do you know the Holy Spirit as your empowerer? Or have you been empowered? Are you empowered? Is power real? Now, I would suspect there may be one or two in the room, maybe, don't want to judge, that maybe aren't quite fully realizing this Jesus-promised power in our lives every day. So I'm just going to speak to the one or two in here that may be in that category this morning. There are two reasons in the book of Acts, in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 in particular, that I believe tell us why so many Christians live divorced or in neglect or devoid of this Jesus-promised power. The first one is, we neglect to live a life as a witness for Jesus. And number two, we don't pray. Folks, 
we neglect prayer personally and corporately. We don't prioritize it. We use prayer in the car as we go to work and we throw a few sentiments up somehow. So those are the two reasons. We neglect to live as a witness for Jesus and we don't prioritize prayer. Look again at verse 8. Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So, here's the thing. We, we love the first part of the verse. Well, you shall receive the Holy Spirit and you will receive power. Well, we love that, right? Well, Jesus tells us what the power is for. He tells us very explicitly what the power is for. The power that Jesus promises is for the sake of God's kingdom. The Holy Spirit empowers us not to make us good or to make us feel good the holy spirit empowers us to make us good witnesses for jesus that's the point that's the point of the power it is to further the gospel to teach god's truth to further the cause of christ to live on mission right to be actively involved feeling andrew in the world with love filled faith filled hope filled followers of jesus and that's what the power is for we partake of power only in as much as we live the life as a witness for Jesus. Sorry. We partake of the power of God only in, so, in as much as, as we point other people to Jesus. The point of the power that Jesus promised was basically to be a flashlight. To, to, to put a light in Christ on Christ, that others may see Christ, that others may come into proximity with Jesus. God's power is a function of God's mission. God's power is a function of God's mission. Now, most of you know that here recently, eight of us just went and returned from Haiti. We just got back from our, our, our trip down to, to Haiti, and one of the mornings when we were there, one of the, uh, the global outreach, which is the, the group that we uh, have joined with down there. One, I went out with one of their, their people and we grabbed a translator. His name is G, just a really great Christian brother down there. And we went across the main road to what they call a village. Uh, by American standards, I wouldn't think it would qualify with that. It, you know, it's uh, these little homes on these little plots of land and the, the, there's some that are plywood, there's some that are center block. Most of them are basically sticks tied together with a tarp over over the top of it and that's how people live and that's how family live there's no uh, they, they may have electricity in that village they actually do but they have no running water no sewage it's basically like living in in a landfill it's what I equate it to and so we go out to this this little village and, and I took Shane Malden and, and John Mark to, to come out with us on this particular morning and we're walking and we're just going from person to person as we come across someone home to home just as we come across whomever just to see if we can maybe get into a conversation with someone and just to start sharing the gospel and, and be a witness at least on that morning and we're coming across this home and uh, what you have to know about Haiti is that they they have these little they're tiny plots of land uh, 10 by 30 feet and, that, and her home is on that little plot. So it's not very, and it's these hedges around every plot, every lot, and the hedges are basically cactus. 
Um, and they'll have one opening in there, and that's how you walk in. And we're walking by, and, and Jeet, our translator, noticed a lady in her courtyard sweeping. And by sweeping, I mean sweeping dirt. Uh, because they don't have patios, they don't have, you know, uh, concrete driveways or anything. Everything's just dirt. She's just basically sweeping debris, trash away from the opening of, of their, their little home there. And G, the translator, asked, hey, can we come in? Can we enter into your little courtyard there? And, and she was very shy and very apprehensive, and, but she said, yeah. So the four of us, we, we kind of stepped into the five of us, we stepped into this, this courtyard, and we're just trying to engage this lady in a conversation with every hope of sharing the gospel with her. And we're, we're just going through the small talk, how are you kind of stuff, and this guy, uh, and the picture doesn't do it justice. I mean, he comes out without his shirt on, and the dude is like ripped. And so he's standing at the door, and his arms are crossed like this, and you can tell he's not very happy that we are there speaking uh, at his home to his wife or whatnot. And uh, so I, I said hello and just kind of kept talking. And, and I asked a question that for whatever reason was the main question I was using that week to, to get into a gospel conversation, which is, you know, basically the Conan the Barbarian methodology of evangelism. I asked, what is best in life? And, and so, uh, so none of you know the movie, apparently. Anyway, um, I just asked a question, you know, what is best in life? Like, I'm, ask, I'm just trying to see what they'll say just to try to get into a conversation. And the lady, her name was Sophia, will, uh, began to answer the question when Seville, the husband, he comes off out of the door, and he's coming right at us. And, you know, you're trying to be cool, right? So I was like, all right. And he kind of skims us, and he makes his way to the back corner of their little lot. Um, and I didn't know where, what he was going to do, or he's just leaving, or whatnot, and he just went to back, there's a tree back there, and he turned around, and he invited us into the shade, because where we were standing was full sun, and I'm like, this is cool, he was accepting our invitation to have a conversation, and I tell you, we had to move five feet, eight feet, but I mean, he was, he was calling us into a conversation at that point. So I got excited. So we literally got into the shade, took like two steps forward, and we were in the shade. And, and we spent 20 or 25 minutes speaking with him in particular. And, and he began sharing his plight, why he doesn't believe in God, why he doesn't go to church. And the reason why is because he feels hopeless and humiliated. He is a grown man who doesn't own a home or a house. He has to rent from people who are disrespectful and hateful and mean and who humiliate him. And he has to undergo that an emotional torture of not having a job and not being able to provide for his family. So he goes on and you start feeling the weight of desperation and the weight of hopelessness with this man just sharing how they have nothing. And let me ask you, how do you share, how do you talk to someone? Forget sharing the gospel. How do you talk to someone who has nothing, who has absolutely nothing to their name? And so we're, we're talking with him, and he, he just goes on. He's like, 
I, I can't believe, I don't believe, and, and he's very, being resistful, not contentious, but he's just trying to explain why not. Uh, what's interesting in Haiti, and we'll share more of this in a few weeks on July 26th, where we'll, at our anthem night here, we'll show a bunch of pictures, and the whole team is going to share what they've learned and what they experienced there. Hopefully you'll come out for that. Um, but one of the things that is important to know about Haitians and, and Haitian culture, it's literally the complete opposite of the U.S. In the U.S., we have a hard time sharing the gospel, and a, hard, and a person has a hard time accepting the gospel because we have too much. We have so much that we don't need God is, in essence, what it comes down to. In Haiti, it's the opposite. They have so little that they's like, there can't be a God. Look at how I live. Literally, they will say, I, there was one lady I was, before this that I was talking to. Um, can we tell you about Jesus? You can tell me about Jesus, but do you have any food for me and my children? And talked to her for a while, said, can we pray for you? You can pray for me all you want, but do you have any food for me and Jesus? It's almost as if to say, if we could manufacture miraculous food, well, then, then, sh- then they would believe. So you see the obstacle. Man, sin is so blinding. Whether you have little or much, man, God has to do a work in us for us to come to the gospel. And pray for people to come to the gospel anyway. So I'm sharing with this guy, and I'm trying to explain to him, just believe in God, and God's good, and God's a good father, and he promises to take care of his children. And, and because he's so fixated on his house, I, or not having a house, not having a home, I, I went down the other path of, of saying, like, don't be so concerned about your home on earth. There is a much better mansion in heaven, right? Jesus is preparing a place there. We'll live there together. It'll be great. Just Anything, everything that, that, that God would allow me to think of in the moment. I'm, I'm trying to share. We're going back and forth, sharing. He's sharing his suffering. I'm sharing the gospel. And out of nowhere, out of left field, he says this. Me and my wife had a fight last night. She said some terrible things to me. I said some terrible things to her. I woke up today and I decided I'm leaving. I'm leaving her. I'm leaving this home. I'm leaving this family. God sent you. I'm not leaving now. I'm staying. Now, what? We weren't talking about marriage. I had no idea of the fight him and his wife had had, the words that they had said to one another. We had no clue that he had literally was about to leave the house when we got there. And in that moment, he decided to stay. Why? How do you, how do you account for that? Can you explain that to me? How, how does that happen? We had no idea of what was about to come. It can't, like what he started talking about was nothing about what we were talking about. How do you account for that? One word. Power. Not mine. Not our translators. But God's. I have no idea. All that we said we weren't addressing that issue. 
And somehow God took our feeble words and interjected them into this man in such a way that it reconciled their marriage. Shut up. Shut it up. And we were. Four of us were utterly speechless. We sat there. Shane was crying, of course. We were sitting there just speechless. Like, how is that? We walked away quietly. What just happened? I'll tell you what happened. God took a couple of willing witnesses for Jesus and did something with it. See, that's the power that God is talking about. That's the power that Jesus promised. Be a witness and watch. Just watch. Just see what I do in you and through you. Just, but just do it. No more excuses. No more justifying this or that. No more prioritizing anything else. Just be a witness for Jesus and watch it. Witness it. Be a part of it. Why do so many of us live devoid of power? We're just doing our thing our way and refusing to do the very thing that Jesus said to do. Be my witnesses. What a great moment. That's power. Supernatural miracle power. A marriage was saved. That's the power of the gospel. I don't know how God does it. I don't care, quite frankly. I'm just glad he does. And that he's willing to use men and women like us to do this work in the world. God invites us to partake of it. And, and the question that, that, that is just on us this morning is, do you want that? Do you want God to use you that way? Do you want to experience this divine Jesus promised power in your life and through your life. Do you want it? Well, the answer is simple. If you say yes, then be a witness for Jesus. And it's scary and it's intimidating. It's uncomfortable. It may cost us certain things at certain times. But the, the benefit is so much better. The upside is so much better. So much better. The way for us to witness God's power is by being a witness for Jesus. The way to witness God's power in and through your life is to be a witness for Jesus. Share the gospel. Share your testimony. Share what you know. I don't know that much. Do you know enough to know Jesus and be saved? Yes, you know enough. You know enough. Share that. When's the last time that you deliberately went out of your way, or maybe not even out of your way, but just deliberately entered into a conversation about Jesus with someone? How regularly are you approaching individuals with the intention of sharing Christ and the gospel and, and sharing the hope that only Jesus can provide? How regularly is this a part of your day, your week, your life? Are you living the life of a witness? Are you practicing frangelism? Which is something that we've discussed much this year. So you make a list of your friends. 
your friends, your relatives, your associates, and your neighbors. You make a list, and you begin to pray for them, that they would come to know Christ. And you pray for opportunities to share the gospel and your story with them. So you pray for, you pray for them, and you pray for opportunities, and then you look for that opportunity. And you step forward in boldness, and you step forward in faith. Maybe you do it over lunch or a dinner or a phone conversation. For some people, it might even be through texting. It'd be awesome to do it through Facebook. Let's redeem Facebook. Right? Friends. Friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. Make a list. Pray for them. Pray for opportunities. Share your story. Share the gospel with them. Invite them to church. Invite them to your small group. Invite them to your A-team. It's that simple. I won't say easy, but it's that simple. Make a list, pray, share your story, invite. Folks, and if we would do that, I think that each and every one of us will be utterly shocked and amazed at the power of God that he shows in us and through us. So I would say, let's let's not miss out on this promise that God has made to us. Like, why miss out? Why? Let, let's do what it is that we have been saved to do. First Peter, first, first Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. He's talking to Christians. But you, us, we are followers of Jesus. Right? We're a cho- chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, royal, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you, that us, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That right there, why has God made you his? Why did God draw you out of darkness? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. That is why we have been saved. That is our mission on earth. Share the gospel Be a witness and you will see power unlike you have ever seen. Not selfish, self-absorbed, narcissistic power. Christ-centered for the cause of Jesus. God-honoring for the sake of soul's power. Which is so much better. And that's what it means to live in dependence independence of God be a witness and it requires the Holy Spirit in us doing it right because he supplies the power for it all right so there are two reasons right why Christians don't experience the the promised power of Jesus once neglecting to be a witness and the other one is neglecting to prioritize prayer in our lives right after Jesus told them you will receive the Holy Spirit you will see power you shall be my witnesses right after that Jesus does this ascension into heaven, which would have been cool to see. Like one day in heaven, hopefully we'll ask God, can we watch the DVD of that? Like how cool. So, like, so Jesus does his Neo impression, and he's, he goes flying up into the sky. And so he goes up there. The disciples head back to Jerusalem. They go back upstairs to the upper room of the place where they had been staying. And what did they do? The text tells us that they started praying. Instantly and immediately upon receiving the commission and the mission from Jesus, they started praying. Which makes total sense because they just saw Jesus tortured and executed. 
And yeah, they've seen resurrected Jesus with their own eyes, but they're thinking, wait a minute, if we do what he says to do, what happened to him may very well happen to us. So there's a bit of fear, intimidation, apprehension, understandably so, right? Understandably so. Plus, they're not sure what it really means necessarily. What, like, how do we do this witness thing anyway? So they go straight into prayer. And then, just a couple of days later, 10 days after that, this day comes on the scene. Acts chapter 2 is called the day of Pentecost. And on this day of Pentecost, God keeps true his Old Testament promise. They're, they're gathered together. The disciples are gathered together. They're most certainly praying together. And it says in chapter 2, verse 4, suddenly they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you read the book of Acts, People pray, and they're filled with the Spirit. People pray, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And check the progression out. They pray, they're filled, and they go out and witness. They pray, they're filled, they go out and witness. They pray, they feel, they go out and witness. Every time, prayer, prayer is the catalyst. It's almost like the prerequisite to be the witness in order to see the power. They're in in. They receive the presence and the power of God in their, in their lives. And, and what happens next is nothing short of miraculous. These apprehensive, timid, scared, worried, uncertain disciples take to the streets. They obey God's call to be witnesses. They go to the streets and they begin telling of the mighty works of God. They're worshiping in public. They're witnessing in public. They're teaching in public. On that same day, Peter preaches his first sermon ever. A fisherman who only a couple of months before was denying Jesus. Denying Jesus. Three times in one night. No, I don't know him. I'm not, I got nothing to do with Jesus. Uh-uh. Little, little girl scared him that night. Uh-uh, girl. Mm. No, I don't, I don't know nothing about no Jesus. Two months later. He receives the Holy Spirit. He's praying he receives the Holy Spirit. He goes out, preaches his first sermon. 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus. Folks, that's what's called power. That's God-given, supernatural, God's mission, power. A handful of followers of Jesus pray. They obey God's call to be a witness. And they see power unlike most of us see in our lives combined. In just a few short hours. To experience God's power in our lives, we must devote ourselves to prayer, not just individual prayer, but corporate prayer. Acts chapter 4, verse 31 says, And when they, talking about the disciples, they, right? Not just you, individual, singular, right? They, plural, they, the believers, the church. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they... Believers together gathered the church. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what? And continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The early church prayed together. They experienced the presence of God together. They went out and witnessed together. And as a result, they saw power together. And if it was like that in the first century with the early church, why should it be any different today with us? Why should it be any different? Why is it any different? It shouldn't be. Like, what we need to do is that we need to, to set apart and prioritize prayer in our lives, clearly individually, 
in the morning, during the day, at night, maintain a posture of prayer, be committed to prayer all the time without ceasing, right? But folks, Christianity is not an individual sport at the end of the day, right? It's a team sport. It's a community affair. And there needs to be believers together prioritizing, petitioning God and going before God. And I, I, I long for us to be a church that genuinely prays often and prays together. This needs to be the priority of our A-teams. Actually praying, and, and I'm at fault because in my A-team, like, we'll talk the whole time and have wonderful discussion, and then we're out of time, and here's the 30-second prayer at the end. Folks, we need to be praying way more in our small groups, in our Bible studies. You know, back last fall, we, we decided it's like we're going to prioritize the third Sunday of each month. We're going to come here at 6 p.m. Just one evening. I mean, I'm not even asking for daily, right? We're saying one night out of the, the month to just set apart. And we did it for a few months. And the first couple of times, we had 20, 20 people here. And then as time went through, we got down to like four. And I don't think we had it the last month or two. And we talk about we want to see our church be healthy. We want to see our church thrive. And we want to, see, we want to accomplish this mission. And we want everything to go well. And we've got to provide. We want to see God's power. Are we praying together? Do we devote enough time and prioritize it? And I know we're tired. I know we're busy. I know that we go out of town. I know that our kids are in sports. I know that I want to sit home and watch Netflix. And go through a marathon of Netflix and not come out for two days. I know that I'm sick. I know that the children get in the way. I know that I, we'd rather just sit on our back porch and look at the trees. I know, I know, but there is no power in that. There is zero power in doing what I want, when I want, how I want, doing my thing my way. But to sacrifice in prayer, either individual or corporate, is not easy. It's not always fun. The scripture actually refers to it as laboring in prayer. It is flat out work. But if we would do it, if those of us who are Anthem Church, if we would commit ourselves and prioritize it, devote ourselves to prayer, we will be in shock, amazed at what God does in us and through us individually and through this church. So will we be those people? Will we be those people who gather and pray? If you want to partake of power, you got to partake of prayer. If you want to witness power, you got to be a witness for Jesus. If you want to partake of power, you got to partake of prayer. Now, over and over in the Gospels, Jesus was asked, Are you willing, Jesus? Lord Jesus, are you willing? Are you willing? Blind people, people with all four forms of infirmities and, and, and disabilities and, and lepers, etc., would go up to Jesus. Jesus, are you willing? Are you willing to save me, to help me, restore me, cleanse me, heal me? Are you willing? And the good news is that Jesus is what? He's willing. Folks, that's not in question. Jesus is willing to heal. That's not in question. I tell you what is in question. Are we willing? 
If Jesus saves us, forgives us, shows mercy and compassion, if Jesus loves us and if Jesus restores us, if Jesus does the work that only he can do for our good in us, if he is willing, the question is, are we willing then to follow him lovingly and humbly and out of gratitude? Are we willing? Are we willing to be a witness for him and pray? Who in here is familiar with the story of Louis Zampanini? All right, we live in a church that no one watches movies. All right, that's fine. That's good, actually. All right, so Louis Zampanini. You heard of the movie Unbroken? Came out back in December? Okay, that guy. All right, so during World War II, he's finding his bomber. The bomber goes down in the ocean. Most of the crew dies, and him and two others, one of them died in, in the process later, but uh, Louis Zampanini spent 47 days adrift in the Pacific Ocean. 47 days. The previous record, I think, was 24 or so. 47 days at sea. And then they were rescued by the Japanese. And so he spent two years as a result after that in Japanese war camps and tortured and mistreated. One of the most powerful scenes in the movie is the raft is out at sea, it's out in the ocean, and it's this massive storm that hits. You know, the waves are huge, and the wind, and the rain, and all of that, and uh, the camera just zooms in on Louis Zampanini, and he's holding on to a rope, and he's on this little dinghy of a raft, and, and all he says is, He's talking to God, if you get me through this, I swear I'll dedicate my whole life to you. If you get me through this, I swear I'll dedicate my whole life to you. That's what he says to God. And what each and every one of us must understand and recognize this morning is that when we come into this world, we are adrift at sea. We are lost in an ocean, an infinite ocean of sin. We are caught in a storm of death and judgment. And our only hope is to cry out to God, are you willing? Lord Jesus, are you willing to save me, to rescue me, to deliver me? Our only hope is if God is willing to forgive us. And God has clearly and loudly declared that he is willing. He did so through the cross. That's what the gospel is. Jesus went to the cross and God is willing to forgive us of our sin. Everything that we've ever said, done, or thought that was ungodly, immoral, unwise, and wrong. God is willing to undo it all, get rid of it, wipe it clean. That's the gospel. And whosoever believes in Jesus that he died for their sin will be forgiven and receive eternal life. And as wonderful as that is, that's not the great gift, right? The great gift is that because we accept Jesus, we're forgiven. And then we receive the nearness and the presence of God in our lives. He gives himself to us. He gives his power to us. So we need not stumble or struggle through this life on our own, living a life of independence apart from God, but rather we can live the much better life. Relying on God and his presence and his power in our lives every day day and if you've received that gift how should you respond 
the exact same way that Louis Zampanini did. Because after he came out of that, he dedicated his life to the Lord. So if God brings us out of our sin, how should we respond? We dedicate our lives to the Lord. We live as witnesses. We pray for strength, for power, for opportunities. We freely devote ourselves to him who has freed us. How do you need to respond this morning? What conviction, since it's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction, what conviction is the Holy Spirit bringing to bear upon your heart and your mind this morning? Are you, are you saved? Are you a Christian? I mean, do you really know the Lord? Have you been forgiven of your sin? Are you still in that raft that it, it, in the ocean and caught in that storm? Is that you? God is willing. He'll forgive you right now. Just ask for it. Come before him. And is that you this morning? Or maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but you're like, I'm not living as a witness. I'm just doing my thing my way. I kind of got my get out of hell free card, and I've just kind of moved on and moseyed on to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. So there's no power in your life, and there's no real meaning to, to anything. Is that you? Are you living as a witness, genuinely so, in your life? Are you praying? Are you, like you, are you on your knees? Literally and figuratively before the Lord, are you praying together with believers? Spending time with believers praying. Are you part of a mission, this mission of Christ in this world, and, and kind of locked on with brothers and sisters in Christ and say, we're, we're going to plow this ground here in Anger. Maybe in Haiti. We're going next August again. How do you need to respond? What do you need to confess? What do you need to repent of this morning? What conviction is the Holy Spirit coming, bringing to your heart? Just want to give you all a moment just to sit where you are, to bow your heads and close your eyes and just do business with the Lord. I never say anything like this, but I genuinely feel that God is doing some work in some hearts right now. And I just want to give everyone a minute just to, Come before God, just you and be honest. with all heads bowed and all eyes closed. I'm just, this is our invitation this morning. If you recognize today that you have never accepted Christ, that you've never been forgiven of your sins, that you've never embraced the gospel, and you want to do that right now for the first time for real, will you raise your hand?
you're here this morning and you recognize and you know that you have been saved from that ocean and saved from that storm, that Jesus willingly forgave you and that he has given you his spirit, but you are living devoid of the power that Jesus promised and, and you desire for that to be different, will you raise your hand? For those of you who just raised your hand, raise it if you're willing now to go out there, step out in faith, and to be a witness. Raise your hand if you understand how important prioritizing prayer is and you're going to devote yourself to it from here on out. All right, praise God. Lord, Father, I give you thanks for this morning, for the conviction that you bring, for the truth of your word, Lord. Sometimes it's, it hits us in the face, Lord, the steps are in our toes, but it's not meant to do that. It's meant to penetrate our hearts. It is for your glory and for our good, Lord. And I pray for all who have made decisions this morning, who are wanting to commit themselves to you to a greater level, Lord, burn deep within us a passion, a desire, a boldness to live as witnesses for your gospel in this world, Lord. Make it real. Give us opportunities, Lord. Make us aware of those opportunities in the moment, Lord. And may we just witness things that are amazing. May we see your power at work in us and through us as we simply step out in faith and share and tell people who desperately need to know. Lord, I pray, and, and, and I'm the chief of sinners on this one, that you would burn a passion in us to pray, to pray often, to pray regularly, consistently, all the time, by myself and with others, with my church. Let's pray for our church, our mission, our leadership, Lord, everything. Let's pray for your favor, for influence in this town, for the mission to go forward. Lord, burn that desire in us. Lord, we give you praise for the gospel. We give you praise for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We give you praise for grace and for goodness and kindness and eternal assurance. We give you praise for forgiveness of sins, Lord. And on top of all that, we give you praise for giving yourself not only for us, but to us. You are our great and powerful, almighty God slow to anger and compassionate, loving and kind, triune. We can't even understand that, Lord. Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. And as great as you are, you humbled yourself and you became like one of us that you may die our death, that we may have the life that only you can give. Thank you. We give you praise. We lift your name as our great God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing to our great God.